Isaiah 52. We're not in Psalm 116. Let's go to Isaiah 52. Read Psalm 116 at home. It's good. Psalm 52, starting at verse 13. What did I say? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that was a test and you all passed. Well done. Uh, starting at verse 13. <laughs> See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured and beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He will, so he will, will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians, this is a fun night, 2 Corinthians 11, no it's 2, I just got it confirmed by Craig, but you're on the ball, well done, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through, the, and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to utter, to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, 
so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He got there. Well done, Rick. <laughs> and he's had a hard week, haven't you? You've been somewhere else this week, haven't you? Yeah, up at uh, Gorakin. Up at Gorakin at the Northern Lakes Summerfest up there. So you're probably pretty tired. Look, it's, um, it's good to be here. It's been a long time since I've uh, been with you at Night EV to, um, to bring the Bible to you. So I'm glad to be here. Can you bring that light down a little bit, if you would? I'm going to change everything while I'm here. <laughs> And, uh, and on Summerfest this week, we're looking at the issue of grace, essential grace. And, that, and that's what I want to do with you a little bit tonight. I realise we've looked at this part of the Bible, but we just haven't done it properly. So I'm going to fix it all up while I'm here. <laughs> now, we've done a great job. Actually, what I want to see if I can do is draw together what, what's been the whole book, what's, what's it been about, the whole book. There is a theme that's running through it, and I want to see if I can deal with that this evening, because I trust it'll be helpful for you. It'll certainly be helpful for the team. I'm going to pray for us and get into it. Our Heavenly Father, we're, um, we're grateful to you again for the extraordinary blessing that we have in the Lord Jesus and, and the absolutely magnificent things that have been accomplished for us. I pray this evening, Father, that as we come to this word, we'll sense again something of how good that is and that we'll be drawn more and more strongly to it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to help you think about the cross, which is one of those... Um, Absolutely central, profound things in the Christian life. For many Christians, the cross is just the means God used to save us. The means he used to save sinners. And we think it was an arbitrary choice. That is, he could have chosen anything. He could have chosen to save us by giving us a great big plastic credit card or an FPOS machine to pay for our sins with. We think he could have actually done anything to save us. But that's actually not true. It's not, that's a misunderstanding of the cross. God chose the way of the cross for a reason. Because at its heart, the cross teaches something. It teaches something that's absolutely intrinsic to his message for us. It embodies the values he wants his people to have. And therefore, the cross brings its own culture. It brings its own culture. Now, culture is one of those... In church life, and you guys at Night EV will know it perhaps more than, uh, better than anyone, culture is an important concept in church life. That's because we as Christians, we, we, don't, we don't want to be in some sort of um, backwater trying to communicate first century truths to 21st century people using first century forms. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to ride donkeys. We don't want to wear robes. We don't want to... Um, have straggly sideburns like they do in, in Israel in the first century, especially girls. We don't avoid the ham and small goods section at Aaron Affair because we're allergic to or we think there's something wrong with eating ham. 
We don't want to try to communicate in those first century forms where it's inappropriate to do that because we actually want to be all things to all men. Therefore, culture is important to us. It's important to you at night EV, I take it. It's important to us at Sunday EV in the morning. But it's more than those things that makes us concerned about culture. Culture is it's become important in some churches today because the Western world has largely turned against Christianity. And we feel that. Um, it's turned against it so that we feel the pressure to attract people back and to convey the right image about what Christianity actually is and what it isn't. And the big problem in that is, well, so there is a danger in it, the little danger in it perhaps is, um, in trying to be relevant, it's possible to recast the gospel in such a way um, that you actually end up creating it in the image of the culture you actually exist in. You actually just end up importing your culture and missing the gospel. So that you end up with a false gospel. Now that has historically been the case in the world we live in. Um, so you get the prosperity gospel, about which you've heard in weeks before. Or you get the power gospel, which has been a movement that's swept through Australia in years past. Or the liberal gospel, or the emerging church gospel. Have you heard that one? Emerging church gospel? Another little gospel on the scene. Or the gospel about being successful or cool. They're all sorts of ideas that began with a well-intentioned desire to be culturally relevant. But what happens is they end up with a gospel that's no longer authentic. A gospel that's really no gospel at all. Which raises a question. What happens when the culture is in conflict with the cross? Got where I'm going there? What happens when the culture... The culture you're trying to convey is actually in conflict with the cross. That was the problem at Corinth. I wonder if you've spotted it over the weeks as we've gone through this letter together. The people of Corinth were in the grip of a version of Christianity that was culturally attractive to them. It just was inauthentic. It just wasn't real. It was a false gospel because it had failed to understand the culture of the cross. And as I think you've discussed in previous weeks, and I won't rehash all that you've done, hopefully, but one of the little things that gives you a window into understanding the Greek culture of the day into which this letter is written was the acceptance of boasting. The acceptance of boasting. Now, I remember covering some of this in Night EV. We've, we've looked at it together over previous weeks. But 2,000 years of Christian history has taught our society that boasting is really brash and arrogant. We can't stand people who boast, can we? We can't stand people like on Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> you know, they're so irritating and obnoxious when they talk themselves up. Um, like the girl that I saw on a Celebrity Apprentice when I was watching it with my kids a few weeks ago. But not in Paul's day. Boasting in Paul's day was perfectly acceptable. In fact, um, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, the world in which Paul lived, the world of the Corinthians, there was no glorious afterlife. There might have been some shadowy existence people thought they hoped. But the best you could do, not knowing actually what was in that afterlife, was to try to achieve glory in this life and then tell everyone about it. Make sure everybody knew about it. Talk yourself up. And the emperor, Augustus Caesar, was a case in point. He wrote a eulogy in his own honour that listed all his achievements. And he posted it on every statue in every major city so everyone knew how great Augustus was. Oh, that was typical. And Paul's opponents, and if the term's unfamiliar to you, let me use it now and explain it to you. The super apostles, they were men of their era. 
they were they were simply shaped exactly by the culture of the day they lived in. So they weren't adverse to telling other people how impressive they were. And likewise, they weren't adverse to telling others how unimpressive they thought others weren't. And that's certainly what they thought of the Apostle Paul. They thought him to be especially unimpressive. By all accounts, he wasn't a, he wasn't a physically striking guy. He wasn't a great orator. He didn't have a great CV. He didn't wear the power suit. He wasn't wealthy. And whereas other travelling speakers would try to get their pay by having the audience pay for them and support them, Paul never did that. Never did that. Rather, he made tents to support himself. Now, would you think that was a good thing to do? To, to make tents so that people didn't have to pay for you? They thought the Apostle Paul pathetic for doing that because that was the culture of the day. Pathetic that he should work with his hands like that. And so they urged the Corinthians to ditch him because the super apostles were captured by the culture. And the Corinthians, because they were captured by the culture, said, yeah, he looks unimpressive. Ditch him. Do you see massive things have been at stake in this letter? The authenticity of the gospel in a whole region of ancient Greece was at stake in the writing of this letter? Therefore, it raises the question, how would Paul deal with it? What would he write? What would he communicate in such a way that he would capture for them what the real gospel was actually about? Because they were on the verge of losing it. Well, here's how he dealt with it. He dealt with it by spelling out for them the culture of the cross. The culture of the cross. And you get a window into that culture when you see his comment right at the end of the section we read. Come to chapter 12. Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Right at the end of the section there that Ricky read for us. And there Paul says, That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And then he adds this, For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And what does that mean? It's a simple point I want to raise for you tonight. What does he really mean by that in practice? He delights in weaknesses. That's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Um, and it strikes us as odd, probably because it is odd, and it's so unlike our culture, isn't it? We, we don't want to be weak. We don't want to think of ourselves as weak. And we certainly don't want other people thinking of us as weak. And we certainly don't delight in weaknesses or hardships. In fact, we spend most of our time covering up our weaknesses and avoiding hardships. And there's good reason, perhaps, for doing that. But there's another reason we might find it odd. It's because, it's perhaps because, we haven't yet understood as clearly as Paul the culture of the cross. It's possible, you see, we're just a little bit too much like the Corinthians. And that's why Paul spells out from what are the marks of authentic Christianity? What is authentic Christianity look like? Now, if you're here tonight and you're not one who is a Christian, you're just kind of you're investigating things and you're dabbling on the edge of the pond, that's an important question to ask. What does authentic Christianity look like? And if you're one who's been a Christian for a short period of time, it's an important question to ask. What will it mean to be an authentic Christian? Paul spells out the marks of authentic Christianity and he does it in the most extraordinary way. He does it by acting like a fool. By acting like a fool. By boasting. Just as the super apostles did. And so verses 22 and following, 
chapter 11 there, Paul does his impression of the Emperor Augustus Caesar. He lays down a whole bunch of boasts. Or actually, they're more like like anti-boasts. He's taking the mickey out of boasting. And since we've covered a whole bunch of this at church um, recently, I want to take you through it as quickly as I can, just enough to show you the applications of the point. So got where we're going? Verse 22, pick it up there, because he begins in verse 22 with a similarity between himself and his opponents, the super-apostles. These guys whom Paul is convinced, for good reason, have got it wrong. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? Are they Israelites? Are they Abraham's descendants? Me too, is effectively what he's saying there. So far he's saying we're exactly alike. But friends, verse 23, everything changes. And notice the point, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to speak like this. I'm more. Now here's the question that prompts that. What does it mean to be a true servant of Christ? That is to say... What does authentic Christianity look like? Um, That's what Paul's about to show. And the first thing he wants to show is authentic Christianity involves suffering and humiliation, not comfort and ease. Suffering and humiliation, not comfort and ease. Um, See it in verse 23 and following. Here's the first mark of authentic Christianity. I've worked much harder. Been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And not the kind of stone that you think of. But when you hear this, when you hear Paul talk like this and you kind of trace all that through as we've done in previous weeks, you realise his body was like a living monument to his service to Christ. He's like a walking advertisement for what it means to be a servant of Christ. This guy has been beaten from pillar to post all the way around the Mediterranean so that when he says at the end of the, of the letter to the Galatians, as he does, um, henceforth he says, let no one do me harm for I bear in my body the marks of Christ. He means it literally. He means it literally. He means I'm marked by the evidence of my service for Jesus. And then when he says in verse 25, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, you realise, as some of us have heard this morning, so far that's 11 near-death experiences. And he's nowhere near finished yet. This is 56 AD. Paul's got about another 10 or 11 years to go. 11 near-death experiences so far. And then he concludes, verse 28, with this. Actually, rather, he lists eight dangers next. Um, Rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the country, at sea, dangers from false brothers. And he concludes in verse 28 with this. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I just want to... Note something for you on the way through here. Um, That Paul finishes that whole list at that point, verse 28, suggests something about his sufferings and his humiliations. It actually suggests that among all his sufferings, the greatest was that last one. The anguish he feels over Christians who are going astray or 
falling off the bandwagon or losing their faith. That's the greatest pain, friends. That's the greatest anxiety. And I wonder, friends, if you've experienced anything like that. I wonder if you've experienced anything like that. The New Testament is saying you ought to. It's not just the paid staff who deal with those issues. It will be you, if it's not been you up to this point, it will be you as you see friends fall away from Christ to do the painful work of seeking to help them and draw them back. It's, it's painful, it's difficult. And it may be that you're actually one of those people who has fallen away and someone's gone after you and drawn you back, as friends have done for me in the past. Be grateful to them. We're not easy to deal with at that point when we're going astray and someone comes after us to draw us back. They do it at great cost to us. Paul did it at great cost to us. And he's saying, get used to it. That's my experience. But having said all that, I want to draw to your attention something here. You know what our great problem with this passage is? I think. We read that list through our 21st century cultural Western eyes and we think it's just a list of suffering. And someone I was speaking to some weeks ago said, well, I imagine the super apostles would have looked at that list of sufferings and said, wow, we cannot compete with a bloke like that who has suffered so much for the cause of Christ. But that's not at all what they would have said. What they would have said is, rather, we'll come back to that in a moment, what they'll say, but um, what Paul is mentioning there is not just a list of sufferings. It's actually a list of humiliations. Suffering, yes, but humiliation is what's involved in it. So verse 23, come back to the top of the list again, where he speaks of working much harder. You just think he's got a good job down at Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's and he's got some late shifts. It's not that. What he's saying is, I've worked hard with my hands in the dirt. You know what, in cultural Corinth, in the... First century world of the Corinthians. You know, you know what that would have meant? That's pathetic. To work, in your work with your hands in the dirt, that's pathetic. And the super apostles would have despised him and the Corinthians were tempted to despise him because what he was saying was entirely countercultural. But suffering and humiliation is the mark of the genuine servant of Christ, friends. It's the culture of the cross. It's the culture of the cross. And I, and I labour the point for you because we live in a culture where it's not easy to get it. But we need to get it. Remember when, um, remember when the two disciples of Jesus, James and John, come to him one day and they say to him, we've got a question to ask you, Master. We want to sit one of us at your right hand and one of us at your left in your kingdom. Do you reckon you can do that for us? Remember this, that conversation? And Jesus' answer is perhaps an unusual one if the language is unfamiliar for you. He says, can you be baptised with the baptism I receive? You know what he's saying in that? He's saying, are you ready to go where I go? Are you ready to follow where I go? Because I'm going to the cross. The cross wasn't some sort of romantic punishment. It wasn't some sort of thing that you wear, a piece of jewellery you wear on your chest. The cross was humiliation. The cross was abject shame. It was disgusting. It's the kind of thing you don't talk about in polite society. And Jesus says, are you ready for that? Are you ready to come where I'm going? And they say, yeah, sign me up, boss. 
And you know what? James is the first to go. Not so much longer, um, he's beheaded in Jerusalem for the sake of Christ. Because a suffering saviour means that the true nature of Christian life, at least in this age, at least in the age in which we live, is suffering and humiliation. Yeah, there's glory. There's glory. But it's just not yet. It's, it's, it's the cross before the crown. You know what? When, you're, when we're in a large church in Erina, and you've got lots of friends, we don't feel the rub of this particularly. We don't suffer much in, in Australia for Christ at all, actually. But there are reasons for that. Some of them just are a quirk of history, the history, the age in which we live. We live in a part of the world, in an era of history, that's shaped profoundly by the Christian gospel. So that our society may now be throwing it all away. It is throwing away all of that. Like it's the prodigal son throws away his inheritance. That's what our world is currently doing. But we still have remnants of that heritage left that are an enormous blessing to us. So we don't get thrown to lines, do we? We don't experience that kind of punishment for sharing the gospel. We don't have to hide from a secret police. We don't get imprisoned. We don't get killed or tortured. None of that stuff happens in Australia. It's a quirk of history that doesn't happen. Or perhaps to say it's actually part of the sovereignty of God in the era in which we live that it doesn't happen. But all over the world, other Christians do. In fact, all through history, this has been the lot of Christians. Suffering. And humiliation. And therefore, wouldn't you think we'd make more of our opportunities? Because we live in a world, we live in a country where it is so darned easy. You'd think we'd make more of our opportunities at that point, but growing up in a culture like ours has made us soft and lazy. So that if someone looks at you sideways, if someone greets the gospel with some sort of rejection or just indifference, do you get frightened and run away? Do you take it personally and resolve to never go there again? If that's the case, then you haven't quite understood the culture of the cross. Or, friends, is it the case you've either forgotten or never considered Christian life takes its character from Christ? It is the cross before the crown. It is hardship. It is suffering. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you love father or mother, son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If anyone is ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of him, said Jesus. Don't run away from the suffering of the cross. Don't be ashamed. Life will be short. Heaven will be long. So stand up. There's the first mark of the genuine Christian life. It's suffering and humiliation. It's not comfort and ease. But there's a second mark. And the second mark is this. You find it in verse 30. It's weakness, not power. Weakness, not power. Verse 30. If I must boast, says Paul, if, if I must be driven by you, Corinthians, to carry on like a fool... To boast like your precious super apostles do, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness, says Paul. And then he gives an anecdote 
that, that is so pathetic to his enemies, he actually has to add an oath to assure them it's true. So verse 31 there, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, verse 32, the governor under King Aratas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Now, I wonder, you've had enough weeks to get your head around it, but I wonder if at first glance, if you're here for the first time and haven't considered it before, I wonder if you wonder, why does he relate that event here? And if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, the key lies in the word Damascus. Luke records the event in Acts chapter 9. It was shortly after Paul's conversion. He's gone to Damascus, a great city in Syria. He's gone there as the proud, self-sufficient, elite, well-respected Pharisee. He's gone there to arrest Christians. But on the road he meets the risen Jesus. And his whole world is turned upside down by what he sees. And here's his thinking. He realises in the blink of an eye, Jesus Christ has been raised to life. And we thought he was a criminal. We thought he was an imposter. But he's been raised to life, which means he actually is the Christ. He is all that he said he was. We thought he was cursed by God. We thought he was humiliated. So if Jesus is the Christ, what does that mean of the cross? We thought it was humiliation. What does that really mean that it is? Well, it means, friends, it means in the midst of humiliation, there was exaltation. It didn't look like it. That is, in the midst of humiliation, Jesus was actually raised up, glorified, did the most extraordinary and wonderful thing. In the midst of weakness, because it looked like weakness, there was power. In the midst of suffering, it just looked like suffering, there was really victory. Turned Paul's world upside down. He realised it was there the whole time and we missed it. And Paul suddenly realised he's given his whole life to the wrong cause. It was a massive thing. Massive assault to his pride. But here's another massive assault to his pride. Because again, in the Greco-Roman world, if you're in the army when you were besieging a city and you were the first person to get over the wall and into the city, the emperor would give you a massive award that said how fantastic you were. Do you hear what Paul's saying when he talks about himself and the city walls? He's saying I'm exactly the opposite. I'm not the first guy over the wall and into the city. I'm the first bum out of the city. I'm lowered from the walls like a pile of dirty washing. It actually is almost, um, the anecdote's almost a parable of his life. He's saying, I came to Damascus and I thought I was something. I thought I was impressive. I thought I had it all together. I thought I understood what God actually wanted. But when I understood the cross, I realised I was nothing. I was actually the greatest of sinners. What a descent. Not power. Weakness. That's me, says Paul. That's the culture of the cross. The culture of the cross is that which demonstrates the folly of the pretend power of the world and demonstrates that it actually is weakness and demonstrates that those things that look weak to us actually are extraordinarily powerful. Now, chapter 12, Paul goes on to speak of his spiritual experiences 
Um, but the point he's making is exactly the same. Come to chapter 12, and I know you've looked at it in recent weeks. Because in verse 2 there, he tells of this man in Christ he knows he was caught up to the third heaven. Who was it? It sounds like one of Paul's mates until you get to verse 7. And he says in verse 7, To keep me, Paul, from being too conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now listen, you don't have to be too much of a genius to work it out. You've had a couple of weeks to get your head around it. But wouldn't it be a complete dud if one of Paul's mates gets the revelation and Paul gets the thorn? He's the one who had the revelation, but Paul's the one who gets stuck with the hardships because of it. No, no, that's not what's going on. Paul's the man who gets caught up to the third heaven. When you read the book of Luke, you find Paul has spiritual experience and vision after vision. It's just that he never tells you about it. You never find out about it from him. And he relates this one with the most acute embarrassment such that he can only bring himself to speak about it in the third person. I know a man in Christ, he says. But he's actually speaking about himself. Now, friends, why do I draw that to your attention? I do it because it's very different from today. It is very different from the culture, the church culture in which we live. And all you need to do is go to Kurong Books and find that out. Not that Kurong Books is bad or anything like that. Go to any other bookstore you like. I don't care. But if you go to those bookstores, you see the number of book titles that report somebody's vision or their deathbed experience and what they learned about heaven from it or about the pastor whom God has told when the world will actually end. And you know what? Do you imagine Paul would ever have written a book like that? He doesn't go in for that kind of boasting. He thinks it's just distasteful. So he doesn't do it himself. If I must boast, he says, verse 30 of chapter 11, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. That is not the church culture in which we live. That is not the evangelical world which, that's actually all around us. And one of the marks of growing in Christian maturity, I take it, is that you become more and more aware of the fact that you're very, very frail. You're very, very fallible. You become aware of the extent and depth of your own sinfulness. Now, the, um, Ricky told us about life there a little bit earlier. When people come to life and they hear the explanation about God and what he wants from us and where we stand with him apart from Jesus, you know what their reaction always is? shock. They're devastated. And actually, they're concerned for us because they think, oh, don't think so poorly of yourself. You're not so far away from God. You're really a very, very good person. But you know why that is? Because they don't understand the cross. Because why on earth, if we're such thoroughly good people, would God send his son to take on flesh, to live a life among us, to share our pain, to die? if actually we're thoroughly good people? Why would he do such an, a completely ridiculous, idiotic thing? Is sin really so serious? Are we really so weak and pathetic? Yes, says the Apostle Paul, we really are. And when he saw it, it changed him. Notice what he said there in verse 29. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? 
Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? What does he mean there? In the first part, at least, he means he knows his own weakness. He knows his own frailty. So he can sympathise with the sinner. He knows what it's like. Mind you, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Paul knows what it's like, and so he's sympathetic. I had been a Christian a short period of time when a friend told me how the local Anglican minister's son had got his girlfriend pregnant. And I was shocked. Um, I was outraged that he could do such a thing. And it was not his greatest moment, that fellow whom I know, who's a solid Christian to this day. It wasn't his greatest moment. But my friend, who's long since given away any pretension to Christian life, my friend saw my shock and my outrage. And he resolved something that day. He resolved that he would never share his struggles with me again. Now, you know why? Because he saw my outrage, my lack of sympathy. But my lack of sympathy, you know what it was caused by? I hadn't seen my own frailty. I hadn't seen my own weakness. I hadn't seen it at all, really. I would in years to come, but I hadn't seen it then. We are friends. We are broken. That's the message of the cross. We're all broken, all of us. We're all weak. There is mercy. Thank goodness there's mercy. Thank God there is. There's mercy and forgiveness in the cross and our constant need of it ought to make us gentle, not arrogant, as the super apostles were. And it ought to make us forsake the illusion of power, as if we're anything special, as if there's anything we can boast about, especially when it comes to gospel ministry. Now, quick quick digression on this letter. Chapters 2 and 3 of this letter, Paul considers the enormity of the task of persuading people about the gospel. That is the work we're about, I take it. If you're one who's a Christian, that is the work you're about. That's your life's work. And he asks this question back in chapter 2. He asks, and who is equal to such a task as that? And the answer is, nobody. Not me, he's saying, not me. And a few verses later he says again, Not that we're competent in ourselves for such a task. We're like the clay jar that's got the incredible treasure inside it. We're nothing. The treasure's wonderful, the treasure being the gospel. It's powerful, but we're not. We're nothing. You know what I drew that to your attention? Because some church traditions never get this right. And they don't get it right because they're shaped by their culture the culture in which we live. So they play up the issue of power and look for it in the wrong places and parade it in all the wrong places. And you see it when churches or Christians seize upon the celebrity convert, the the sportsman or the pop star or the reformed drug addict, and they think that simply wheeling that person out on stage is going to have an impact on unsaved people. So they'll say, sign me up. I'll become a Christian. There's no power in that. That's ridiculous to think there's any power in that. Or, friends, and you'll have to ask your folks about this one because you're too young to know it. The Toronto Blessing. Anyone heard of the Toronto Blessing? A couple of young people there. (laughs) Toronto Blessing was a thing that came around, gee, how many years ago? I can't remember, 10 years ago? Longer than that? 
you know what I tell you? It was a, it was a thing where, um, where people, uh, figuring they had a blessing from the Holy Spirit, would moo like cows, bark like dogs, roll around on the stage. And it was thought it was a great work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say nothing ever happened in that movement at all that wasn't of value. The Holy Spirit may well have done things in spite of some of the excesses of that movement. I tell it to you because in five years' time, there'll be another weirdo thing that'll crop up. Five years after that, there'll be some other weirdo thing as well. It happens every five years. Usually it comes from America. You're not from America anyone, are you? You, you'll see it again and again. Don't get attracted to those things. Don't get attracted to the apparently overt, ostentatious gift or the preacher who entertains you with stories or anecdotes because it seems so impressive. It seems so powerful and significant and spiritual. That is just, do you see, Corinthian. That's just Corinthian. Just immature and Corinthian. So much better to say, what a great gospel. What a great God. Than what a great preacher. What a great storyteller. What a funny guy. Wheel him out. It's just Corinthian. The Corinthians would have said it because they didn't understand the cross. So they delighted in the cult of personality. And friends, I hope you're much clearer than that. There's every evidence that that is the case. I was, um, I was talking with some friends at the end of 8.30 Church a few weeks back and the question came up about the Christian life and I want to put it to you because it is one of those questions that will help you discern something about the way we ought to value, the way we ought to see Christian life. Is it a life of power or is it a life of weakness? 20 seconds. Discuss that with a person next year. Christian life, a life of power or a life of weakness? Well, that'll do it. I haven't given you time. I may just have started an argument. Gee, it's a hard question to answer, isn't it? It's a hard question to answer. We want to say what? We want to say power. We figure, oh, I don't think that's going to be the right answer. <laughs> we want to say it's half and half, don't we? Isn't that right? We want to say it's half and half. But friends, it actually isn't. Actually, is it not really? We have a taste of the powers of the age to come. Yeah, we've got a taste of it. We do, absolutely. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit gives to us. The Holy Spirit himself is a foretaste of the powerful age to come. But it is the age to come. Chapter 1, verse 22 of this letter, he's a deposit or a guarantee or a down payment in some of your versions. That is who the Holy Spirit is. He's a down payment on the powerful age to come, but it's the age to come. It's not, it's not the age we have now because, friends, it is the cross before the crown. It's the suffering before the glory. It's the hardship before the wonders. It's the, it's the weakness before the power. That's why the second mark of genuine Christianity isn't power. It's just weakness. It's God doing extraordinary things through people who are weak. That's what we are. So let me bring you back to the question we began with. Why did God choose the way of the cross? It wasn't arbitrary. 
It wasn't as if he had a thousand good ways of rescuing sinners. Now God chose the way that looked weak, not powerful. He chose the way that looked like humiliation, not glory, looked like suffering, not victory. Because the cross is the rock upon which every proud and arrogant person stumbles. The cross is the rock that trips up the people who are too wise, too smart, and they think, I will not have it. I will not fall for something so pathetic and foolish as a God who saves by means of a cross. I'm too strong to bow to weakness like that. And so they reject it, only to find themselves broken by it. And in a gathering as large as this tonight, I wonder if perhaps that is you. You You've come here with a friend and you're actually on the edge of Christian life. You haven't ever jumped in. You're just kind of looking at it from the outside. And actually you think to yourself, well, I don't know about it. It looks like weakness to me. If you haven't responded to the gospel of Jesus truly, why is that? Why is that? Is it because you don't think it's important enough to think about now? I reckon if I was your age, that would be a thought that might cross my mind. Not important enough for now. Or because you've thought about it and you've written it off. Or because you think, I don't need it now. I'm having too good a time. I don't, want to be, I don't want my style cramped by God. I don't want him messing with my life. I just want to enjoy stuff now. And so you're too clever, too wise to give all that up. And if you're really struggling, if you're really broken, oh, maybe then. Maybe then I'd have Jesus. But you say, I'm not really struggling. I'm not really broken. That really isn't me. And if that's you, that's your problem. That's your problem. Because God's intention is to make foolish the wisdom of the wise. Make weak the strength of the self-sufficient. And that's why he chose the way of the cross. And it's why the cross brings its own culture. Suffering and humiliation, not ease and comfort. Because fallen human beings will always attack what appears to be weak. Always. Friends who go do some evangelism this week, you can know that to be the case. The sinful world will always attack what appears to be weak. And Christian life is weakness, not power, because fallen human beings are always intoxicated by what seems to be powerful, what looks impressive, always. And therefore, one last mark of genuine Christianity is this. It's humble dependence not proud self-sufficiency. Come back to the verse we began with. Come back to the verse we began with. Because Paul says that he boasts in the things that show his weakness, and that was strange. And chapter 12 and verse 10, the verse we began with, he said, that is why for Christ's sake I delight, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And friends, that was strange, wasn't it? Delighting and boasting. Delighting and boasting in those things. Um, delighting and boasting are more than just knowing. Why delight and boast in things like this? Why delight and boast in weaknesses, in insults, in persecutions and hardships, when the natural tendency of our culture is to hide from them, to run away from them? 
Why delight in them? Well, it's because as long as we feel self-sufficient for living life our way, we'll never find our sufficiency in Jesus. We'll never trust him. We'll never really treat him like he actually is God. And that is, in fact, that's exactly what he wants from us. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to throw ourselves on him. So when Paul says in verse 10, that is why I delight in weaknesses. You know what he invites you to check out? That is why? He invites you to check out verse 9. A verse I know you're familiar with because Andrew brought it to you a few weeks back. Verse 9. Why? Um, Why does he delight? Because, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That's why Paul delights in weaknesses. He wants to know the grace that gives real power to the weak. He wants to know that power, the power that comes through the grace of God. I'd get there, I told you I'd get there finally. Grace is the issue we're looking at this week. God doesn't want a bunch of supermen and women who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. He doesn't want can-do people who can just get it done because they're strong enough and they're tough enough and they're capable enough and they're gifted enough. He doesn't want that. He wants those who are fearful and weak, who are guilty and broken, who struggle and fail, who fear insults and persecutions, who find themselves insufficient for the task of Christian living. He wants people like that. And does it sound anything like you? Any of those things. Are you scared about evangelism? Do you feel insufficient for it? Are you struggling with the ordinary hardships of Christian life, of ordinary life? Well, if that's the case, you're normal. And the question, therefore, is what do you do about it? Don't run away from it, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Don't hide from it. Rather, Paul celebrated it. He delighted in it. It was... He was completely out of his depth and he thought to himself, how fantastic. Gives me a great opportunity to experience real power, extraordinary power, the powerful grace of God that's for the weak. And it came through trusting the God whose grace rests upon the weak. You know, usually the grace of God is not seen as some blindingly impressive miracle that makes everyone go, wow, gee, got to see that one again. It's usually not seen in those kind of things at all. Usually it's just seen in the humble, everyday miracle of the Christian who perseveres in living for Christ regardless. In fact, you usually see the grace of God in the midst of hardship where people are doing it tough and they just persevere because Christ keeps them persevering. That's the culture the cross creates. That's what it does. It's suffering and humiliation, not ease and comfort. It's weakness, not power. It is humble, depends, not proud self-sufficiency. And if God can work that in a man like Paul, odds are he can do it in you and me. Isn't that right? So I'm going to pray for us that we'll be people who own our weakness and cast ourselves on the grace of God. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we, um, we have a big year ahead of us. We've got an extraordinary week ahead of us. And we feel ourselves at every moment insufficient for these things. We are insufficient for these things. We want to ask, Heavenly Father, that we would not 
be slow to cast ourselves on your grace and that we would know the power that you bestow on those who are weak and throw themselves on you. We want to pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.